Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yordana Osband, our Daf of the day, Masachet Gittin, Daf Yod Aleph, page 11. So we've, we're still in this discussion about the non-Jews, the non-Jewish courts. There's a question of non-Jewish names, non-Jewish witnesses. It does make me wonder about the greater context of what's going on here, particularly in Bavel, but also in Eretz you know, to the degree that they are checking into this question so carefully to make sure that they can answer, you know, what happens when non-Jews are involved to some degree in court, in contracts, in releasing slaves, in divorce, whatever. I mean, in the bills of divorce, not the actual divorce. Rav Ina Savarla Akshurei Bakhnufiyata Da'aramai. Okay, I'm halfway down Amad Aleph, maybe a little more. And the Gemara is talking about Rav Ina who decided that it was valid, meaning this word akashure is from kosher, right? He made it kosher, this document that was written by a group of Aramai, meaning non-Jews, right? Arameans, we know this word from Lavan and the, and the Haggadah. Amar Rafram, now Rafram, I believe he's, I, I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I just believe he's a, one of the Barpapas, right? Because he shows up in the Hadron, um, and we don't see Raphrams very often otherwise. Um, so Raphram says to him, meaning we learn that Gentile courts, meaning back in the Mishnah, that the documents are valid when they are produced in, an, in, a, in a court, but not in a, in a special court, in an important court, not just any old, you know, non-Jews, whatever. So when Ravina wants to, you know, accept this document, Raphram has hesitation. Amarava Haishtara Parsad de Masre Nihila Baape Sahada Yisrael Magbinbe Magbibne Hare. And likewise, Rava said that when you're talking about a Persian document, a Shtara Parsa, right, that's written by Persian authorities, and then it was transferred, you know, it was literally transferred um, before witnesses, before Jewish witnesses, right? So it's a non it's a non-Jewish document that is in fact transferred in front of Jewish people attesting to it. Then Then, in fact, if the property itself is does not have a lien on it, meaning there's no mortgage, whatever, then the person who receives this document can go collect it. So the issue here is like, you know, the question is, when is the document, is there a document that's going to be considered valid all the time, no matter what? And it seems that these cases are a little more specific than that, that sometimes you need to be careful over which court is authorizing it, which people are, you know, how knowledgeable are they, how authoritative, I guess, is really more the point, are they? And then likewise, you know, when we say that you have a document that you can use to collect the land sold by the debtor, you know, the person who who's indebted, right, um, then that's only going to work sometimes. And it has to, for example, the caution here is that there can't be a lien on it. And it seems like the case can't be too complicated. So the Gemara says, one second, do the witnesses not know how to read the Persian? Meaning, if you're talking about Jewish witnesses about a non-Jewish Persian document, and if Jews are not knowing how to read that document to begin with, then how can they serve as witnesses? So the Gemara answers, no, no, no. Rava is talking about a case where these witnesses were people, were Jews who knew Persian. They could read the document. They could, you know, they were good witnesses for this purpose. Now the Gemara asks a different question. Can we really rely on such a document? Because we need to make sure that these documents 
are written in such a way that they cannot be forged. With Ayef is to be forged, or to forge, to be forged. And, you know, you're talking about a document that the Persians are preparing, and maybe they were not so careful in their writing of their legal documents, right? That's the concern here. And so the Gemara says, you know, when Rava's bringing this example, he was careful in his example. He's talking about a case. So what happens? We're talking about a case where the documents were produced with gall, right? We talked about this a long time ago, um, right? That this is part of the way the document would be prepared. And then you can't forge that. Um, and then, you know, when you say you have the, you know, these good, wit these witnesses are good. You could see the topic, the document, the very last, no, the, the very last line. And then the fact is that when you come to Persian documents, you can't always do that. So Rav is trying to bring an example. And the Gemara is making the point that Rav is trying to bring an example where we have a document that actually does bring, like, go back to the topic at hand in the last line, so the one that's rolled up or folded up or whatever it is to be handed over, then they know that that is the document that they're supposed to be seeing. Um, I feel like this is a little bit chaser ikar menasefer, that the, that the main topic here is a little bit lacking because I feel like this is where I would like a video of exactly what's happening with these Persian documents and these witnesses and exactly what's happening. Rava clearly had a case in mind and the case itself, meaning the general inferences to be drawn from that case, only work when you have the specifics of that case before you, which is what the Gemara is, you know, getting at here. And so the Gemara then says, well, if all of these cases, all of these details are in place, then why are you worried about whether the property is has a lien on it? The property with a lien on it should also be fine because it should be the same thing as a document that's written by a Jew. Why doesn't Rava? Like, why does he have that stipulation or that limitation? And the Gemara answers, late like Kala. The reason is that they don't want the document to become a big public thing. And so, therefore, it just has to be like, it's the document that cements an oral agreement as opposed to it being the document that makes the transaction happen, for example. And the this kind of distinction is... Um, Again, I feel like we're very much the case is very much in the weeds, and we're trying just to to pull out from it exactly what we need what we need for to understand how far um, did the non-Jewish involvement in these court documents how far did it go? Um, you know, I think it's interesting to see the Gemara makes a distinction that the Mishnah really doesn't talk about which is this a court a document made by non-Jews in a court system versus sort of just like a private contract that's made. And I think this whole discussion really points to sort of the necessity of the Gemara. Like if you just read the Mishnah, I think you just think like, oh, okay, if, if non-Jews make a document, it's allowed. And then you get the Gemara discussion and it really is like, you know, you need to consider this factor and you have to consider that factor. And maybe this is what the Mishnah meant. And that's what the Mishnah meant. And it gives you like the commentary really becomes important. And I think, you know, this passage and its interpretation of the Mishnah really shows that. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of different gradations. We kind of assume that that's how Allah is built, but the Mishnah did not lend itself to, to like 
it's just not there until it is here in the Gemara. Um, right. I want to just... It, yeah, sorry, sorry, I just want to think about that. And I think it shows you the piece that, like, I don't think the mission was meant to be comprehensive. In other words, it, it, it's... And when I say that, what I mean is the Mishnah's shorthand. The Gemara is filling in all the blank of what people did know about Mishnah that sort of got lost in the generations. The Mishnah is supposed to be an index card, you know? And then the, the, the Gemara is sort of the long form note. I think that's fair. And I think the fact that Rava is the one who has been quoted here and like the, the questions on the statement on his position they don't hold up because he's Rava, meaning Rava knew about that. His case didn't address that. He was already more specific than you think that he wasn't attuned to, right? Because these are Rava, this is Rava with his very broad shoulders and his, you know, superb stature as uh, as an outstanding Amora, right? Like in terms of the leader of halachic development and so on. So I feel like, you know, the fact that he's able to pull it all, you know, and connect it all back to the Mishnah makes sense, as opposed to if it were some minor Amora, I don't think that the position would be as accepted in the Gemara afterwards when they raise the questions on it. We've talked about this before in terms of, you know, when is the the Talmudic authority considered sacrosanct even for our day, and when was it, you know, all over the place back then? And I would say that here, Rava is being upheld in a very serious way. He knows, because he's Rava. Okay, I'm going to move on now to the Mishnah on this stuff. Um, and it reads as follows. So, so somebody, uh, you know, the, the husband or the slave owner says to somebody else, give this bill of divorce to my wife or give this emancipation, uh, you know, document to my slave. If before the document reaches the woman or the slave, if the owner or the husband says, you know, I, I, I want to retract this. I don't, I don't actually want to give this get. He can. Debray Rabbi Meir. That's what Rabbi Meir says. The Chachamim say, with, uh, with a bill of divorce, you can do that, right? They can retract it. But not with a slave document. Right, sheim yirtzet shelo lazun et avdo rashai, v'shelo lazun et ishto eino rashai. Right, so the reason is is that it says that when you want to act in a person's interest against his absence, right? Um, so therefore, the agent in a way acquires the document on behalf of the slave because it's to the slave's advantage to become free. So once that get is given to the shaliach, it's like the shaliach accepts it on behalf of the slave. But if it's to a person's detriment, which is the wife's situation, right, then the shaliach can't actually accept it. It actually has to be delivered to the wife itself. And so what do they mean by this? Because um, if a master wishes not to, this is what it literally says, not to sustain a slave, he's allowed. In other words, uh, the slave owner is actually not required to provide food. Now, this sounds very, very harsh. I think it's more talking about in favor of the woman, right? But a husband is not allowed to say, I'm not going to feed my wife. He has to feed his wife. And so even though, and again, I think because all issues around get and Jewish divorce today are so, um, you know, they're uh, they're heavy today, right? They, they have a lot of implication because of the way the system is set up in the modern world. You know, when you read this mission, you see that actually it's very protective of women, what they're doing, 
even though the system today does not feel particularly protective. And then Rabbi Meir says to the rabbis, Amar lahem, Okay, but he disqualifies his slave from eating truma, right? In other words, if the slave owner is a Kohen, the slave is allowed to eat truma, and then by making him free, he can't have truma anymore. So he is entitled to some kind of food. Um, and so by allowing the shaliach to accept it upon him, you've cut off a food source, right? Because the same way that he would have cut it off for his wife. Rulo, so the chachamim say back to me, Kin, yeah, you know, right? So it's the the slave, right? The reason why the pre-slave can it can take part of the truma is not because he has a right to mazon. It's not because he has to be provided for, but because he's owned by the slave himself. So, uh, you know, again, when we read this today, it sounds, I don't know, it's a little difficult to say that, you know, another person is somebody's kinyan. That is the halakhic language that's used. And wait till we get Kedushin when there's a lot more talk about the subject of Kinyan between people. But um, again, what, what's amazing is when you read this Mishnah, uh, you know, it's really meant to be protective of the woman. Like it is a protective measure. And again, even though today many of us experience how halakhic marriage takes place, right? That it is a Kinyan you know, issues around divorce, thinking about what we learned about in Ketubot and thinking even here with the get, uh, there really is sort of set up into the system a lot of protective measures. Yeah, I feel like we're going to see even more of that as we go on. I mean, we're called back to Ketubot, right? The whole idea of a Ketubot was to protect the woman as well. And Gittin precedes, you know, historically, it precedes the concept of a Ketubot. Oh, right, because the get is from the Torah, and as we know, Ketubot is completely rabbinic, so that that is for sure true. Um, okay, the Gemara here, I'm not going to spend some time reading it, but basically, it starts with this uh, conversation with Ravuna, Rav Yitzchak, Bar Yosef, in front of Rav Yirmia, who's, uh, who's sleeping, um, and, uh, you know, they have a discussion also about the idea of, like, uh, can you take, uh, you know, can a third party take something from a debtor's property on behalf of a creditor when it has the interest of the creditor and can he acquire it, you know, acquire it. The third party, can they acquire it on behalf of the creditor? So it's supposed to be sort of parallel to the idea of a shalia, you know, a third party acquiring something on behalf of somebody else. But I, I, I'm not going to spend time on that today. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.